For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Very ancient book, the first book in our Bibles. And last week, we saw the beginning of the Jewish people. A guy named Abram. God came to him. We saw this map last week when he was living way down here in Ur of the Chaldees, in modern-day Iraq, Iraq and Iran. And he came to Abram, who was an idol worshiper from a long line of idol worshipers, worshiping the moon god. And he said, Abram, I want you to leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to a land that I will show you, and I will make your name great, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will protect you, and I will bless those who bless you, and all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. This great promise to Abram. And last week we saw he started off by leaving his native country, heading up the Euphrates River. And after a delay, he left his father's family, finally. And he went to the land that God promised to show him. So he did three of the four. He's, he's still got his one relative, his, his nephew Lot, hanging on. But we're going to get rid of him this week, so don't worry. Well, he got to the promised land. There was famine there. Instead of staying where God had put him, he decided to leave when things got tough. He went down to Egypt. And after almost losing everything, including his wife, he returned from Egypt, ironically, with a whole bunch of money, as well as some servants, including a girl named Hagar. And that money and Hagar are going to cause a lot of headaches for Abram here in the coming decades. Some of those we'll see tonight. And so we'll pick up where we left off last week, Abram returning from Egypt. We zoom in here on Israel, the promised land. It says, Abram left Egypt very rich in livestock and silver and gold. His caravan was getting huge by now. And in fact, it wasn't just him. He heads up to this city called Shechem. And it's Lot was, was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats and herds of cattle and many tents. Yeah, Abraham's side of the crew alone at this point, we're going to see a short time later, he's got 318 men who are old enough to fight at this point. If each of those guys has a wife and a kid on average, that's a thousand people traveling around, setting up tents, huge herds of livestock, sheep, goat, cattle. Not to mention Lot has a sizable crew of his own. And remember, those people and those animals have got to eat. They need water. This is going to cause problems. Here's where we start to see Abraham's immense wealth, much of which he acquired in Egypt, really starting to bring pain into his life, as it so often does. The land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. In fact, disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And all this time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the land. So here we have believers in God. They can't get along with each other. They're fighting over money-related issues. And the non-believers are sitting there looking on in amazement here. You guys can't even get along with each other. Well, finally, I don't know how long this went on, but finally the pressure got to be too much. And so Abram takes a step toward a solution to this issue. He says, Lot, look, 
let's not allow this conflict to become between us or our herdsmen. We're close relatives. We're, we're, we're practically brothers here. We're family. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. So Abram and Lot are finally going to part ways. If you want the land on the left, I'll take the one on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, I'll go to the left. He says, look, you get your choice. I'll just take whatever you don't want. This can't go on. Well, Abram is right here. It's hard to get a sense from a, just a flat map. I think it, it's a little bit clearer with this topographical map. He's right here at this place that would become to be known as Shechem. And <clears throat> Lot looks out to the north and the south and the west, and what he sees is this pretty rugged hill country. I don't know if you can see in this picture, there's just hill after hill after hill. It's rocky. You know, traveling from one place to another is walking down for a while, then walking up for a while. Living in tents, sleeping on rocks, I guess. Lot, I think, had about had enough of this. But when he looks down to the east, what he sees is a very different picture as he looks down the mountain that leads down right to the Jordan River Valley, the lowest place in the world, leading right to the Dead Sea. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the fertile plains of the Jordan River in the direction of Zoar. Yeah, Zoar was a, major, was a city down at the bottom of the Dead Sea to the south. And what he saw down there looked a lot more pleasant. It was flat. It was lush. It was watered. It looked pretty good a lot. It was well watered. Like the Garden of Yahweh. He heard about that Garden of Eden. He thought, boy, this looks a lot like that. The beautiful land of Egypt. He remembered his time of luxury living in Egypt, being treated like a king by Pharaoh. And that sounded pretty good to him as well. And so Lot said, well, that's an easy decision. By the way, this is before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he wasn't really thinking about the spiritual climate of what was going on down there in the Jordan River Valley. It was actually a pretty wicked place. That wouldn't be looking too good in the years to come. Lot wasn't thinking about that, though. He wasn't even praying. He was just deciding on what he could see. And he chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. And he went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. And so Abram settled in the land of Canaan. And Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom, which would have been way down at the south end of the Dead Sea off the map here. You know, he didn't just camp out down the Jordan Valley. Sodom, a very wealthy city, very wicked city. We'll talk about Sodom in a couple of weeks. They had a lot of problems down there. But he didn't just set up camp. He set up a little closer and a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to Sodom. People in this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against Yahweh. He didn't think about the effect that might have on him or his family. It turns out it's going to have disastrous consequences. And so Abram is here alone. And as he looks down in sadness, God comes to Abram again with a message for him. And what, what does God say to Abram at this time? I know what I might expect. Look at you, Abram. Look at you. Can't get along with your own relative. Now he's headed off on this very destructive path, and you know it. If you would have just listened to me in the first place, 
You only came halfway in the first place. It took you too long to act on this. And then you got here and things got hard and you quit and you ran and you created even more problems in your life and in your family. Pitiful. You could have been somebody, Abram. You could have had this land, but now you've blown it. Is that what Abram says? Is that what God says to Abram? No. As Abram stands there looking at the ground, feeling perhaps lonelier than he's ever felt in his life, after Lot had gone, Yahweh said to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look as far as you can see in every direction to the north and the south and the east and the west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession, Abram. I'll give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go walk through the land in every direction. I'm giving it to you. Because God is the God that keeps his promises. He's the God that keeps on surprising us with his grace. He did what Abraham did, what God asked him to do. He's fulfilled his part of the deal. He left his homeland, his father's household, his relatives. He went to the land, and now God says, this is yours forever, Abram, yours and your descendants. And so Abram moved his camp to Hebron, to the south, and settled near the oak grove, belonging to a guy named Mamre. He turns out to kind of become buddies with Abraham, it looks like. Well, and he built another altar to Yahweh. Well, at this point, the action zooms out again to the world stage, and we have a brief aside to set up what happens in chapter 14. Moses tells us about this time war broke out in the region. King, four kings, Amraphel from Babylonia, Arioch of Elisar, King Chedorlaomer of Elam, it's a big cheese area, he's a Packers fan too, I think. And King Tidal of Goyim, these were four kings from back in the land that Abraham came from. You know, these were kings, these were like the ruler of a city, you know, like a walled city in the surrounding countryside. But these were powerful men. These were men whom Abraham had probably grown up fearing. And he hears that these guys are coming down to make war. Why? Well... They came and fought against King Bera, king of Sodom, as well as four other kings from that same area that Lot just moved to. I'm not going to list the other four because it's unnecessary to know their names. This second group of kings joined forces in the Sidim Valley, the Valley of the Dead Sea. So they're way down here, just southeast of where Abram is right now. And so these guys, it says for 12 years, these, these five kings in the area of Sodom had been subject to King Chedorlaomer. But in the 13th year, they said, we had enough of paying taxes to some guy who lives way over in Mesopotamia. And they rebelled against him. And so these guys come up to teach some people a lesson. They make their way up the Euphrates River that next year, one year later. Cheddar Laomer and his allies arrived. And for several verses, it tells battle after battle as they worked their way down east of the Dead Sea. They made their way back up around and they battled on the plains here, right outside of Zoar in the valley. They fought against King Chedorlaomer 
four kings from Mesopotamia against the five local kings. Well, as it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they got whooped by these guys. Some fell into the tar pits. The rest escaped to the mountains. Their armies completely immobilized or, or deserted. And so the victorious invaders plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. And here is where we find out why we got all this backstory. Because they also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who now lived in Sodom and carried off everything. Yeah, at first he was, he was setting up camp closer, a little closer. A little, and finally one day he's just like, I'm tired of the tent life. I'm going to live in Sodom. And so he moves in there, moves his, his family in there, and he gets captured. All of his wealth, all of his plans for comfort and luxury. Now he's, a, he's been captured as a prisoner of war and is taken away, along with all of his stuff. Well, one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew, who was still living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre the Amorite. Now, Mamre and his relatives, Eschol and Anor, they, they were Abram's allies. They're buddies. They're going to help him in what he's about to do. So he's just north of where this battle happened. And when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who'd been born into his household. So here he is. He's, he's, he hears Lot is in big trouble. And I don't know if you guys have a friend or a family member like this who makes foolish decisions. And then you're like, oh, what am I going to do? They're, such, they're in such a needy state right now. Do I help them or not? Abram, he's, instead of responding with bitterness over what happened with Lot or passivity, he decides, I think Lot, I think he needs me. I think I'm going to give him another chance. Let's get together. Let's, so he rounds up a, an army here. Out of his household alone, plus some of his allies join in. So this would have been not a small force. And they take off in pursuit of the five kings, of the four kings and Lot. He pursued Cheddar Laomer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. So that's like 100 miles north off of this map. He catches them. He divided his men. And he goes with a surprise attack in the middle of the night. Cheddar Laomer's army fled, but Abraham kept chasing them. He chased them another 100 plus miles as far as north as Hobah, north of Damascus. You see a determination from Abram here. And in the end, he recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and all the other captives. And so he's coming back down, coming back home, and on his way past the city that would soon become known as Jerusalem. It's Salem here. He runs into two kings. This is a very important encounter that Moses is going to narrate for us here in the valley just outside of Jerusalem. It says, After Abram returned from his victory over Cheddar Laomer and his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, the king's valley by Jerusalem. And... Another guy who we've never met before, Melchizedek, the king of Salem or Jerusalem. He wasn't just a king, though. It says he was a priest of God Most High, and he brought Abram some bread and wine. So Abram returns home. He's got 
you know, hundreds of soldiers. He's also got all the people that were captured in Sodom and Gomorrah, plus a lot of stuff. This was a big entourage, and he's coming through, and he's passing through this valley, and there he sees the king of Sodom just sitting there looking angry. And this other guy who's got a banquet spread out for him right there in the valley west of Jerusalem. He brings Abram some bread and wine. He's a priest of God Most High. That's kind of interesting. This is not just some Canaanite priest. You know, they had their local deities, but, you know, a Most High God. They didn't really have one of those. This guy looks like he's the real deal. He brought Abram some bread and wine. And then it gets even weirder. It says Melchizedek blessed Abraham. I sort of imagine this like, you know, Melchizedek gets real quiet and then Abraham maybe even drops down to one knee and bows his head and Melchizedek lays his hands on Abram and he begins pronouncing a blessing on this great patriarch. And he said, blessed be Abram by God most high the creator of heaven and earth. So he knows, not just that there's one God, one most high God, but he's the one who created everything. Not something you had in the pagan religion. He said, and blessed be God most high who's defeated your enemies for you. He knows that the reason Abram had this victory was not because Abraham is sweet, but because of God's power and God's promises. Almost seems like this guy knows the Abrahamic, the covenant God made with Abraham. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had recovered. He sends multiple servants to go and section off hundreds of head of livestock. They bring bags and bags of gold, and he just drops them at the feet of this priest. And we're just standing here scratching our heads. Everybody else in Genesis has a genealogy. This guy comes out of nowhere, and it looks like he's the highest ranking guy in the whole book. Abraham's like, oh, he's receiving a blessing. He's giving him a tithe. What is going on here? Well, the king of Sodom is sitting there watching all this, looking pretty angry that Abram's giving away all my stuff. And so he says, hey, give me back my people who were captured. I guess you can keep his stuff. It was sort of customary. After he did go track it down and win it back. But Abram, he's learned his lesson about taking stuff from foreign kings. He's getting wealthy off of it. He replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Just in case you weren't sure, Melchizedek was a follower of the one true God of the Bible. Abraham spells the whole thing out here for us. He says, I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong really any kind of song, <laughs> from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. I'll accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. I guess I'll take that. <laughs> and my buddies here. Can you give a fair share of goods to my allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre? 
He did make the journey and help me get Lot back. And that's the end of the story. Melchizedek heads back up into Jerusalem. The king of Sodom heads back to Sodom with all of his stuff, all of his people. And Lot, who goes right back down and moves back into the city, hasn't learned his lesson. (laughs) Where do you see where Lot is a couple weeks from now when we study him? And Abram goes back down to his oak tree of Mamre, back home. And that's the end of the story. How strange. How strange. What I want to do is I want to spend some time talking about this Melchizedek guy. That's our story for tonight. But Melchizedek, even though there's only three verses on him here, that's, that's all, all the record we have of his life. This guy goes on to become very theologically significant. And I want to talk about him and his significance. I'm going to try to explain this. It gets a little complicated, so you've got to try to hang with us here, okay? It'll be worth it. Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. Why was he so significant? Well, the first thing we have to answer is this question. If we're going to understand the significance of the priesthood of Melchizedek, we need to understand first, what's a priest? We might not know. A priest, and and in order to to explain this, I'm going to have to quote somewhat heavily from the New Testament book of Hebrews which is one of the best commentaries that we've got on the Old Testament. And so I'm going to quote on this, and this this became a very important issue after the death of Jesus Christ in this new covenant, the new community that God was forming around 50, 60 AD. So what's a priest? Well, a priest is something that was set up 600 years after Abraham died, the Old Testament priests. God rolled out a system of worship that included priests and a high priest. You see, God had this thing that was sort of like a temple, but it was mobile. And the priests were the ones that worked in this mobile temple. They called it a tabernacle. Hebrews 5.1 gives a pretty good summary of a priest. A priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. So if we had a visual illustration, why do people need someone to go between them and God? Well, you have God, that's the cloud on the right. You got people on the left. And originally, remember what we saw earlier in this book of Genesis? God created people to be in perfect relationship with him and each other. But then we sinned. We rebelled against God. We turned us away from him. And God had warned, sin is going to create a separation between me and you. You guys are sinful humans. I'm a perfect, holy God. You can't just come over into my presence. And if someone tried to do that, like this, boom. (laughs) Dead. In fact, we see an instance where this happened in the Old Testament. Some guys decided to just walk right in because they felt like it into this, the middle room in that temple that symbolically was where God dwelt. And this is what happened. Boom. Gone. God said, you can't just come into my presence. And so that obviously creates a separation. And so God came up with the idea of priests. God said a priest is somebody that has a special ability. He's allowed to symbolically come into my presence. They can come across and they're fine. And they can go back and they can talk to the people. They can go back and forth. It's sort of like, you know, 
They might take a sacrifice. So here's a pink sheep. They take this. They carry it over. They offer it to God. And they come back and they can say, God accepted your sacrifice. Sort of like, you know, when you're like in grade school and you like that girl and you're afraid to tell her. And you, you write a little note and give it to your, your priest friend. <laughs> it carries it to her. And then he comes back and tells you, did she accept your sacrifice or not? <laughs> or you go to a restaurant, you know, you're, you have the, the customer and you have the cook and you don't just go into the kitchen. You definitely don't want to go into the kitchen either. You don't want to see what's back there. But um, <laughs> the, the server kind of goes back and forth between, they have like the special ability. The cooks shouldn't come out to see the customers either because nobody wants to see the cooks. And so you kind of go back and forth between the cooks and the customers. That's like your job. That's what a priest did in the worship system. Now, a priest, Hebrews says, can deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. Yeah, he's not holy and perfect like God, and so he can, he can actually be sympathetic to people. He can help them with their problems. And that's why he's got to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. So before he can offer that sheep, he goes over, he gets himself maybe a cow, goes back, offers that up to God, and then he's like, okay, I'm ready now. I'm, I'm symbolically cleansed, and now I can do your thing. And so then they give him a sheep, and he takes it over, offers it to God again, and then he goes back, and he's like, I got to offer another sacrifice for myself. So he gets another one, and he brings it over, and he takes it back to God, and then he goes back, and he says, all right, give me another sheep. And so he takes the sheep, and he takes it over, and he offers it up to God, and this is the priest life. This is a typical day at the office, day after day, year after year. Cleansing yourself, sacrifice for the people. Sacrifice for me, sacrifice for them. The death of animals didn't actually pay for sins, you realize. No, this was all a teaching tool. God was trying to say, look, remember what I said? Sin brings death. The day you turn, turn away from me, that'll be the day that you die. Well, what you're supposed to realize when you show up and you, you slaughter that lamb and you offer it up is that should have been me. And a sacrifice is being offered in my place. To be a priest, you had to be descended from Levi. You couldn't just decide, when I grow up, I want to be a priest. No, you, you, didn't, you didn't just go to preschool. You had to have the genetic pedigree to be a, a priest. One priest out of those priests would be chosen to be the high priest. And that's like the head priest. And that priest really just had one special duty as, as prescribed in Scripture, and that was one day a year, he'd offer a special sacrifice for the sins of all the Israelites. And this is a very important day. Well, Hebrews 5 says, no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work. And so if we look at this timeline, when God called the first priests... You know, the book of Hebrews that we're reading quotes from here. This was written in about 60 AD. The priesthood started almost 1,500 years before that, in the time of Moses. Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. And God set up this tabernacle and this whole system of worship as a teaching tool. 
And so this was a system of priests called the Levitical priesthood. It's because they were all descended from Abram's great-grandson, a guy named Levi, the Levitical priesthood. See that? That was the priests. A priest, to sum this part up, a sinful human bridging the gap between sinful humans and a perfect God. Now, Jesus Christ, the Savior, came to earth and he died for our sins. All these pictures in the Old Testament are pointing forward to Jesus. And so God now says, you don't need a priest any longer. We can go to what I originally wanted, which was no barrier between me and you. The sin barrier is gone and you can come directly to me and we can have a relationship unlike anything in the Old Testament. We can approach him directly. No need for priests. Unfortunately, after the death of Christ, some Jewish Christians were confused. And they were like, but I've had a priest my whole life. And in fact, some priests became Christians. And they were like, am I out of a job now? And so these Christians, instead of trusting Christ and approaching God directly... They instead started going back to that mediator, back to writing a little note. Can you pass this on to God for me and tell me what he says? And they come back, okay, good. And then they write another little note and they pass it over. And then it comes back, okay, good. Going back to the old system. And they were like, how can Jesus be my priest? Because there's a couple of problems. You know, we've had priests for 1,500 years. He isn't even from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. The kings came from the tribe of Judah. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. He didn't have the right pedigree. No matter how good he was, he couldn't be a priest under the old system. This, for example, you know, this issue of pedigree, this is why you would never see a bumper sticker like this, Arnold Schwarzenegger for president. Although maybe he could have gotten elected a few years ago. He wouldn't have been eligible because you have to be born an American citizen in order to run for president of the United States. So his pedigree does not qualify him for president. And Jesus' pedigree said you're not qualified to be a priest or much less a high priest. Secondly, also Jesus is dead. And so even if he could have been a priest, he's not now. And in the old system, when the priest died, they got a new high priest in there because somebody had to do this job. There was the functional bringing sacrifices into the temple. Somebody had to do that. I can't just stick a quarter under my pillow and hope the priest fairy will come. This is a very real concern. Jesus is gone and he's not qualified. And so how can he be my priest? And maybe I should just go back to the temple and offer some sacrifices re-erecting the barrier between me and God. Well, Hebrews talks about this. He says, yeah, Christ didn't honor himself just assuming he could become high priest. He didn't make himself a high priest. No, God chose him. God said to him, you're my son. Today I've become your father. God explicitly testified at the baptism of Jesus and other times as well, this is the Messiah. So, 
We know he's the Messiah, testimony from God the Father himself. And he says, in another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's our dude. There's our guy that only got three verses about his life in the whole Old Testament. He comes up again 2,000 years later in the book of Hebrews. And he makes a couple of points about the order of Melchizedek. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is not the order of the Levitical priests. This is a different kind of priest. A priest in the order of Melchizedek is better in every way than the Levitical priests. And Hebrews goes on to make some points straight out of the book of Genesis. Let's look here. I've got a visual. So you've got Melchizedek. And what we, one reason he's superior is he received a tithe from Abram. So Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And he points out, wasn't Levi the great-grandson of Abraham? And weren't Aaron and all the other priests, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons of Levi? And didn't all the Israelites during the whole Old Testament pay tithes, a tenth of everything they had to Aaron and the priests? And in the way they thought, where your ancestor was greater than you, he says, you know, we might even say these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. It's clear Melchizedek's superior to Abraham, so how is Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson going to be better than Melchizedek? He's not. He's even, he's even more inferior to this order of Melchizedek. He also points out Abraham gave a blessing to Melchizedek. Rece- sorry, received a blessing from Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed him. He blessed Abraham. And Aaron and the priest, they blessed the Israelites all the time in the Old Testament, showing their superiority. So Melchizedek and priests in his order are superior not just to Abraham, but all of Abraham's kids, which includes all the priests and all the Jews who've ever lived. He says, without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. And so we see multiple points of superiority right here in this text of Genesis. I mean, it's all there. But the author of Hebrews is putting it together for us in a way that's so brilliant. And so Melchizedek and Abraham, this incident happens not in 1400 B.C., but 700 years before the priesthood begins. And so they're like, but we've had Levitical priests for so long. How can we go away from those? And Hebrews is like, you know what's even older? Melchizedekian priests. And Jesus was one of those. Or was he? How do we know? How do we know Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Just because we've shown there's a, there's a Melchizedekian priest doesn't mean that there was more than one Melchizedekian priest. What if he was the only one? <laughs> if only there was one more passage in the whole Bible about Melchizedek linking him to the Messiah. That would be awesome. God, is it possible you put one more in here for us? 
And the answer is yes. Just one more passage. Smack dab in the middle of 2100 B.C. and 60 A.D., we find Hebrews quoting this passage. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. When did God say that to Abraham? It wasn't at his baptism. In fact, it's nowhere in the Gospels. He never said this to him during the life of Christ on earth. He said it to him 1,000 years before Jesus became a human in heaven in a scene that God let King David watch and write about. Psalm 110, which says this. It's a psalm of David. And David writes, Yahweh said to my Lord. And by the way, Jesus said, hey guys, this psalm's about me. That was one of the last teachings he ever gave before the cross. He said, David's talking to Yahweh. And then he's saying, my Lord, he's got to be talking about the Messiah. Something he saw the Father say to the Son. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Yeah, the footstool, that's what they would do sometimes. It's like this ultimate alpha move. When one king would defeat another, he would actually make him lie right down on the ground, and he would just put his foot right on his head and look around for everybody to see. God says, I'm going to demonstrate, not literally that, but he's going to demonstrate your superiority. He says... Yahweh will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be his ruling city. This is a a passage about Messiah. No doubt about it. And then verse 4. Look what Yahweh says. He says, I've taken an oath. I will not break my vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The one passage we needed saying that the Messiah is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And when did this happen? The order of Melchizedek, which stretches out in both directions. It was already around when Melchizedek got there. It's still around when Hebrews is written. And it's still around today. This Psalm 110 is 1000 BC, right in the middle of this timeline. A chance encounter in 2100, a vision to David in 1000 BC, and we see the pieces coming together in the new covenant, a new kind of priesthood, hidden there by God and revealed now for all to see. Hebrews points out one other thing from the text in Genesis, very insightful. He says, you know, Melchizedek was a king of the city of Salem and a priest of God Most High. Yeah, in Israel, they had separation of church and state. The king and the priest couldn't come together. But that doesn't apply to the order of Melchizedek. You can be priest and king. Furthermore, he he says the name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. And so we see justice and peace coming together in one man. 
we see mercy and righteousness coming together in one man. Usually, you know, you have the good cop and the bad cop. This guy's both. He brings the bad news and he brings the good news. He's a human being so he can relate to sinful humans, though he's not sinful because he's righteous. He's perfect so he can pay for sins. He's God so he can pay for the sins of everyone. And this priest king will rule from Jerusalem forever. And so priests in the order of Melchizedek, let's sum up. Greater than Abraham and all the Levitical priests. They can be both priests and kings. That's not a problem. They bring righteousness and peace. Not compromising on either one. They've been around longer than Levitical priests. And Messiah is a member. In fact, we only know of two members who've ever been of this order. Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And he's still alive today, living as our priest. And so the picture we have coming together is this. Even though sin, God says, creates a barrier between me and you. And these priests were a picture of what Christ would one day do. In the New Testament, we find a different solution. We see the cross of Christ bridging that gap, covering our sin, forming a bridge. And I remember seeing a diagram like this when I was a kid, and it still stuck with me, that because of what Christ did on the cross... There is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ, Jesus. One mediator, not human priests anymore. They're done. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And so now we can go directly to God, not through a priest, but by crossing over and coming boldly into the presence of God. And this story about Melchizedek is the proof that Jesus is qualified to be a priest of a greater order when they didn't anticipate. He's saying, you don't have to go to these priests anymore. It's sort of embarrassing because Christians keep reintroducing priests. And I think there's a part of us that likes that. For some reason, we want some sort of a separation. But the implications here are profound. One, in the priesthood of Melchizedek, we see the brilliance of God. We see predictive prophecy. We see God hiding something and then revealing it. We see all the pieces fitting together in this puzzle. And another implication, there's many more, but another implication is this, that human priests are now obsolete. And God wants you to come to him directly through Christ. And so in conclusion, the real question I'm going to leave you with is, what are you going to do about your sin? This barrier, this lightning bolt separating you and God. Are you going to ignore it? Pretend like it's not there? Deny it? That's not going to work. God won't have that. Are you just going to try to be good? It's too late for that. You can never be good enough. Even if you were perfect and yet you sinned at one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole law of God. Are you going to find a a sinful human mediator to bridge this gap for you? That's not going to work either. How about you do what God wants you to do, which is come to Christ. Come to Him. 
Have God take away your sins. And then learn to build your relationship with God. Build a friendship with God. Walk with God. Meet the God of the universe and allow Him to change your life forever. So there we go. Mysterious Melchizedek. Next week, we'll look at the next stage in the life of Abraham, trying to have a baby, trying to have that son. God's way versus my way. Yes, Lord, thanks you're the God that keeps your promises. You're always surprising us with your grace. Thank you for how you put together not only this system of priests in the Old Testament to teach us important things about you, but for how they pointed forward to Christ and the new type of priest that he would be, the final and only priest that we'll ever need for the rest of our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would not cower in fear, turning back to sacrifices and offerings of good works. I pray instead, God, that we would trust Jesus Christ fully and completely as the only one that we need to pay for our sins and the only priest we'll ever need, and that that would usher us into a new and living way, a new close relationship with you. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.